to be aware of with a buyback are that those technical and practical considerations are considered prior to the company offering to buy back a shareholder's shares, that those procedures are followed as required by the Corporations Act, and that the tax implications are dealt with accordingly once it's been carried out. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 267 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. A share buyback is usually a thing for the big guys, but not necessarily. Any company can do a share buyback. The question is just whether they should. In this episode, Emily Pritchard of Access will walk you through the pros and cons of a share buyback. Certainly in a small private company, it's a lot more straightforward than, say, a share buyback in a publicly listed company or similar. But definitely there are requirements that need to be followed when carrying these out, both in terms of complying with the Corporations Act itself, but also in terms of complying with some administrative or policy requirements of ASIC. Before one considers ASIC, I think the first question is really weighing up, should I just sell the shares? Mm. Or should I do a share buyback? There's a lot to look at. I think if you're an advisor and someone comes to you and they want to somehow remove a shareholder with a parcel of shares from a company, there's a lot of different ways you can look at doing it. And, and quite often clients will come to us and say, can you cancel these shares? And the short answer is you can't simply just cancel shares. If shares were issued as redeemable shares, then certainly they could be redeemed by the company and cancelled in that manner. But that's only if they were issued as redeemable shares and if the company has profits or proceeds of new share issue to fund that redemption because the only way shares can be redeemed is out of profits of the company or proceeds of a new share issue. So that's one option. But quite often either there aren't profits or proceeds of a new issue available or the shares weren't issued as redeemable so they cannot be redeemed. And most shares normal companies have, you know, normal mum and dad companies have, wouldn't be redeemable. They would just be ordinary shares. Not usually, you're right. But it, yeah. certainly in circumstances where there's been enough forethought into potential down the track circumstances, there might be. But that's something I'll always run past the client and say, are they redeemable shares? Yes. But if they're not, you can look at whether they are fully paid. And if shares aren't fully paid, then potentially a call could be made by the company for the remainder that's outstanding on those shares to be paid. And if that is not complied with, then the shares could be forfeited and cancelled in that manner. But again, it's quite unusual for shares to not be fully paid these days, certainly in small private companies. Is that the case? Most private companies have fully paid shares? From my experience, yes. The majority of shares in small private companies are usually fully paid from what I see. And it's usually just $10 or so, and it's just less of a headache to pay it because otherwise you just constantly have to carry this special class of shares of unpaid. You know, it just causes a headache, I assume, if you don't pay them. So you might as well just pay the $10 or the $100 and and then have them as fully paid. Is that why most shares are fully paid? Yeah, and I think often they are fully paid because the shares were issued at the time the company was established and maybe it's it's it wasn't worth a lot at that point. So it's easy to pay the $10. It's 
it becomes a different story maybe if further it shares are issued down the track and the value of the company is different and those shares need to be issued at market value they could potentially be worth a whole lot more than the you know the one dollar shares or the ten dollar shares there you may be looking at different considerations but does it ever matter whether the shares are paid or not paid I guess the short answer is yes. Certainly, if they're not fully paid and the company makes a call for the remainder to be paid that can't be complied with, then you could potentially forfeit those shares and lose them. Yeah. Okay, so that's the second option. The first option was to just redemption. Mm-hmm. The second option is forfeiture if they are not paid. That's right. And then another option which is always available to companies when there is the need to exit a shareholder is a share buyback or a share transfer. And that's when I think um, some advisors call us for some guidance as to which is the best option in any set of circumstances. And a share transfer is a sale? A sale, that's right. And then a share buyback. So we basically have four options, redemption, forfeiture, share transfer, aka sale, and Hmm. share buyback. That's right. They're the four main options, I guess. And my gut feeling is unless there's something particularly unusual about the company. So unless they have a high amount of franking credits and no current profit to distribute and they want to use these franking credits, or unless there is a lot of money in the company and the shareholders have no money, unless there's something unusual, I think usually a share sale makes a lot more sense because with a share sale, you have a capital transaction, not capital as in share capital, but you have mm. a transaction on capital account, meaning you have a capital gain. And then you get all these discounts and concessions. You know, you get the 50% CGT discount, you get the small business CGT concessions. None of that you get when you make it a share buyback and then have any access over capital as accessible income. So I think unless you have unusual circumstances, I think a share sale always makes more sense than a share buyback. But of course, never say never, you know, ne- never yeah. say always, you know. <laughs> yeah, look, I think in any given set of circumstances, it's important to look at what what the practical considerations are to the circumstances and the technical ones. First and foremost, the practical considerations are have a look at the governing documents of the company. You know, does the constitution or the shareholders agreement of the company outline any specific conditions or requirements in terms of the shares being either bought back or transferred because that could impact the decision on which road to go down. Standard of the shelf constitution, company constitution or Mm. the replaceable rules usually wouldn't stand in the way of a share sale or a share buyback. That's right. Yes, absolutely always have a look. In the vast majority of cases, there isn't going to be anything out of the ordinary in the company's governing documents in the constitution or a shareholders agreement, which will stand in the way of a share buyback. But you most, I think it's always absolutely prudent to confirm that's the case, to check those documents first and foremost. As in read the deed. Read the constitution. (laughs) Which I love saying. The other practical consideration, and I think you've already touched on this briefly, is is there an existing or a new shareholder willing to purchase those shares off the exiting shareholder? Because the short answer is if there isn't an existing or new shareholder who wants to purchase those shares and who can agree on a price at which to purchase those shares, then regardless of the other considerations, you know, the buyback may be the best option. Yeah, it might be the only option. That's right. The flip side to that is, I guess, the practical consideration of does the company have the funds available to it to buy back those shares? Can an agreement be made between the company and the shareholder at, you know, as to the consideration to be paid for those shares to be bought back? Because if the agreement can't be made or the company doesn't have funds available to it, then a buyback may not be an option either. 
if the shareholders can't come to an agreement, mm. if there's no purchaser to buy these shares and the shareholders can't come to an agreement regarding the share buyback, then there's basically no way out for the shareholder. And that, of course, then shows the importance of shareholder agreements at the start so that in a shareholder agreement, it is already laid out what happens if one of us wants out. How can one of us get out and get and also to have mechanisms built into those governing documents in terms of resolutions of deadlocks and arbitration provisions in the event that an agreement can't be reached. It's unlikely you're going to be able to deal with every possible scenario. The better you can deal with any potential scenarios in those, in those governing documents from the outset, the better position you'll be in when those yes. circumstances arise. And I assume that the replaceable rules don't cover any of those areas, correct? Not in much detail, no. So that means the replaceable roots are fine when it's just the sole shareholder of a small company. But the moment you have several shareholders who go beyond just mum and dad, mm. the moment you have third party shareholders working together, holding a company together, you really need a constitution and a shareholder agreement. Does a sale of shares attract stamp duty? If it is in, there, in certain circumstances, it can. For example, in Queensland, if there is a sale of shares in, a, land. in, in a land-rich company, then that could trigger stamp duty. So certainly in certain circumstances, it could. Oh, okay, good. And so if a land-rich company then just buys back the shares, then it wouldn't attract stamp duty? I think it potentially still could. I think it potentially still could. but Okay, so that it just means that whenever you change the shareholding of a land-rich company, yeah, no matter where it is in Australia, always check the stamp duty. Absolutely, yes, absolutely always, yeah. I mean, regardless of that, you know, we, we should always check the duties legislation regardless of what the company owns when you're doing a transfer. But certainly if, uh, if it's land-rich, absolutely check it. Well, actually, if we backtrack just briefly, what yes. I didn't mention and I meant to, sorry, was that there's those practical considerations that we talked about when you're determining whether you might carry out a buyback or not. But there's also technical considerations that you might look at in terms of whether, like you said, the shareholder subject of a potential buyback has carry forward losses available to them or small business CGT concessions available to them. If it does, then it may be preferred if the shareholder that's exiting does have CGT concessions or carry forward losses available to them, then it may be preferential for them to exit by way of a share transfer. On the other hand, if there are franking credits available in the company, then it may make it more favourable for an exiting shareholder to exit by way of a buyback because the franking credits will be made available to them. In that, yes. in that sense. So there's there's certain, I guess, practical considerations. And then if you're not limited by those practical considerations, then there's additional technical considerations that can be taken into account. Yeah. And talking about the franking credits, mm. if you have distributable profit, you could then just declare a dividend and then use the franking credits this way. But then, of course, it would mean that every shareholder gets their respective share of those dividends but if you then just want the exiting shareholder to receive those franking credits then of course you need to do it via share buyback that's right all right we're on to the process yes <laughs> the process of a share buyback it can be quite complex 
And that is because there are administrative requirements. There is also, I guess, legal requirements in terms of how it is carried out. But the Corporations Act tells us that a company cannot buy back shares until notice has been provided. And the effect of that is that notice needs to be given to ASIC by way of a Form 280. And there are certain annexes that need to be included with that Form 280 containing the information that the Corporations Act requires. And that notice needs to be given at least 14 days prior to carrying out the intended buyback. And I think it's important to note as well that a Form 280 currently can only be received by ASIC in paper form. So we're talking snail mail, we're talking express post. Oh, really? You can't get online to ASIC and lodge a Form 280 on the ASIC portal like we might a Form 484. I think it's like the Form 492, isn't it? When you want to correct a mistake mm. in an original registration, I think that's Form 492 and you need to send that in as a paper form as well. Yes, I did hear recently that there was a move to electronic for Form 492s. I don't know if that's actually been implemented oh, as yet it would be great but certainly for form 280s in a share buyback process they need to be sent in hard copy which means you need to take into account delivery times because if ASIC is to be given 14 clear days notice of the intended buyback and the documents are going to take for example from me in Brisbane they're at least going to take overnight to arrive at ASIC's lodgements in Melbourne then you need to take that into account when you are advising ASIC on that Form 280 of the intended date of the buyback. So make, give it a month. If a sufficient number of shareholders have signed an abridgement notice in regards to the notice required to them, then you can shorten the notice to 14 days. And what we would do if we were then sending those documents off to ASIC is we would allow three days additional to the 14, just so that we, we know we're going to get clear delivery and clear notice. So you need to send a form 280 mm -hmm. and then? And then it is important then that you wait the sufficient amount of time before any decisions as to the buyback are actually made. Yes, and these so are you, to protect other shareholders as well as potential creditors of the company. So you should wait until the uh, form 280 has been registered on the um, ASIC portal? As a general rule, yes, we try to do that. Sometimes if ASIC is experiencing delays, sometimes you can get to the date of the intended buyback 14 days later and it may not be appearing yet. But ASIC are very reasonable and what happens when they experience these delays is even if they don't process it until a later date, they give it an effective date of the day it was received by them as a general rule. That's what I, I generally experience. But certainly before meetings are carried out to actually authorise the buybacks 14 days later, we certainly always double check our six records to, to make sure we can see the Form 280 appearing. Okay. And so then after that, the share buyback is basically just a transfer of money, isn't it? The uh, shares are bought back. Any share certificate or so probably should be handed back if they exist. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a transfer of money from the uh, company to the respective shareholders. Yeah, so I guess the point in between those two things, though, is you give notice to ASIC and you advise them in that notice of the intended day that the, the company intends to, to have meetings to authorise and carry out the buybacks. What then happens when that day rolls around is the meetings need to happen, a meeting of members and a meeting of directors need to happen to authorise the buyback on that day. And the way that authorisation is given depends on the type of buyback that's being carried out. An equal access buyback, there's, there's many different types of buyback, I think it's important to note, but the two that we see most commonly and the two that I understand are most commonly carried out are an equal access share buyback and a selective share buyback. An equal access share buyback relates only to ordinary shareholders 
and it's a situation where all ordinary shareholders receive an offer from the company to buy back their shares on the same terms and in the same proportions. So as the name suggests, equal access, it provides equal access to the buyback opportunity to all ordinary shareholders. Any buyback that doesn't meet those conditions of the equal access share buyback, so ordinary shareholders only, same terms, same proportions, if it doesn't meet those, then it's going to be a selective share buyback. So if you're buying back A-class shares, for example, then it's a selective share buyback because we know an equal access share buyback is only in relation to ordinary shareholders. And the way in which the company authorises or approves the buyback depends on what type of buyback they are considering. In selective yeah. buybacks, would it mm. then be all A-class shareholders or all no, B-class shareholders? Or could it also be just Peter Smith who holds A and B-class shares? It could be the latter. So it does not, when it's a selective share buyback, it does not need to relate to all shareholders of a particular class. So the perfect example, I guess, is where there's been certain investors in a venture and one of them decides that they need or want to exit, then they could, if they were one of multiple shareholders holding A-class shares, they could then, well, the company could carry out a selective share buyback to buy back just that shareholder's A-class shares. So do you see share buybacks quite often with venture capital? They come across our desks for a variety of reasons. And if I'm honest, we may not even know in all circumstances what the backstory is, why it's intended that it's being carried out. The advisor or the accountant may have come to that decision with their client, and then we can prepare the documentation that they require for that. So I guess we're looking at, at when it gets to the date for the meetings to authorise the buyback, the way in which they are authorised depends on the type of buyback that's being carried out. Emily, sorry, can I just very quickly come back sure. to this equal access? Mm. I think the equal access could be a good way when you have a stalemate. If one shareholder wants out, but the others don't or so, then you just say, okay, what's the company worth? If we liquidate all assets today, let's say it's 3 million, there are three shareholders. So every shareholder gets the offer of share buyback for 1 million. And then mm. everybody just has to put their cards on the table and it, the stalemate is resolved that way. Potentially, yes. I guess the, and that certainly, there's always particular circumstances that could, you know, impact that the company may not be able to make that offer because they may not have the money available to them to, to offer to buy back all of the ordinary shareholders shares in the yeah, same proportions. So there's those, those kind of things, but certainly it could be considered. Yeah. Fair comment. And when we have a stalemate, that's probably the case that the mm. company assets are not liquid and hence the company is not able to pay out the shareholder, but there's also no buyer for the share. So then it's, yeah then you get into a stalemate. Yeah, and unfortunately, share buybacks can be a situation where there, there are conflicts in play prior to the, the our clients reaching the point of share buybacks. Sorry, but I interrupted you. That's okay. I was just going to talk through. So if the company is, is carrying out an equal access share buyback, then in order for it to be authorised, it requires shareholder approval by ordinary resolution. So more than 50% of those entitled to vote. On yeah. the other hand, if the company is intending to carry out a selective share buyback, there's two ways in which it can be authorised by the shareholders. The first way is it could be approved by a special resolution, so 75% of those entitled to vote, but no votes can be cast in that situation by the shareholders who are subject to the buyback. If in that situation, if you're going to approve or look to authorise a selective share buyback, via a special resolution, votes cannot be cast in passing that special resolution by those subject to the buyback. 
Alternatively, a selective share buyback can be authorised by a unanimous resolution of all ordinary shareholders. Do you want to talk about the tax implications of the buyback once it's carried out, once it's approved? Oh, we haven't, I guess we haven't finalised it like you said. So once a company have, has authorised the buybacks, they're then free to settle if you like. So the money can be paid, the company needs to notify ASIC of the buyback, that the buyback has been carried out. The Corporations Act specifically stipulates that shares that have been bought back by a company must immediately be cancelled and any attempt by the company to deal with those shares in any other way will will be invalid. What happens when those share buybacks have been authorised by the company is that, that settlement can take place, the money that was agreed can be paid to the exiting shareholder and the company then advises ASIC via a Form 484 that those shares have been bought back, that shareholding has ceased and those shares have been cancelled. So the overall share structure of the company has changed. To put it into a chronological order, you first need to notify ASIC through a Form 280. Then you need a membership vote, 50% required if you do an equal access share buyback and 75% required if you do a selective buyback, whereby the, the um, affected shareholder is not allowed to vote. Then you pay, so you pay out the capital, you cancel the shares, and then you not notify ASICS reform 484 that the share buyback has taken place. That's right. The only thing I would add is that a selective share buyback could be approved by the special resolution without the, share, the shareholder subject of the buyback voting, or it could be approved by a unanimous resolution of ordinary shareholders. So it can be approved in either manner if there's a selective share buyback. Now the shareholders have their money mm -hmm. and now it's tax time and they need to reflect this somehow in their tax return. Does the company already need to specify upon settlement how much of it is capital and how much of it is dividend? Usually they would provide those kind of breakdowns, I guess. For... That's probably also already settled in the membership vote, isn't it? When, they, when the membership vote takes place, it's probably not just the number of shares and how much is to be paid out, but it's probably also how much of it is going to be capital and how much of it's going to be dividend and how many franking credits go with it, correct? That's right. So usually what would happen is when they say the company has entered into an agreement to buy back 100 ordinary shares from Emily, those ordinary shares were originally fully paid at $1 each. So there is a return of capital involved in there of that $100. But if the company is buying them back for $200 from Emily, then there is a deemed dividend. And so there's that dividend component of $100. And that's, I guess, when we start to talk about the 1936 Tax Act. One more question. Yeah. When the membership vote takes place, I assume they also need to vote on how many franking credits will go with that dividend. And I assume the company is free in their decision or the shareholders are free in their decision to decide how many franking credits they send along with that share buyback dividend. That's right. It would be included in part of the offer to that shareholder that the company was offering to buy back their shares at this amount and would include the provision of franking credits to this amount. Yeah. So the company or the, the shareholders can decide whether they will fully frank that dividend or whether they won't frank it at all or to what extent they frank it. Are they limited in any way by the franking they have done for other dividends? Because you know how there is this franking benchmark rule that you're not allowed to significantly change the franking percentage during a financial year when you pay several dividends. Does that include 
a dividend that is paid out as part of a share buyback? It's not a dividend declared by the company. It's a deemed dividend by the tax act. Are you sure it's a deemed dividend? It oh, is. Yes, of course, it's yes. a deemed dividend. And even though it's a deemed dividend, you can still send franking credits along with it because That's usually, right. so for example, Division 7A is also deemed dividend, but because it's only deemed, you can't frank it. Yes. But this dividend you can frank right. even though it's deemed. That's right. It's Section 159, capital G, triple Z, P of the 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act. And it tells us that any amount that's paid to a shareholder as a result of an off-market buyback of their shares, that is more than the amount debited to the share capital account in respect of those shares being bought back, is a deemed dividend. So the proceeds of a share buyback that are in excess of the paid-up capital attaching to those shares are a deemed dividend. And it's still possible to frank them. That's right. Okay, but because they are deemed, they're not affected by the franking benchmark rule, etc. If you look at Section 203.5 of the 1997 Income Tax Assessment Act, it tells us that a corporate tax entity must frank all frankable distributions made within a particular period at a franking percentage set as the benchmark franking percentage for that period. So certainly when a company is carrying out a share buyback and they are making franking credits available to the shareholder subject of the buyback, they need to be aware of the benchmark franking percentage for that period for the company. And I can imagine that can be a huge point of contention. The leaving shareholder wants to have franking credits and of course franking credits in a way are pure cash and yes. the um, remaining shareholders argue now you're really <laughs> stripping a third of the uh, company away we are not giving you the franking credits etc so i can imagine that that could very easily be a huge point of contention and so the advice is to the remaining shareholders if you don't want to frank that dividend as part of the share buyback, then make sure you don't declare any frank dividends before this share buyback. Because if you frank the dividends before the buyback, then you need to frank that dividend within the buyback as well. Yeah, or to the same percentage. Yeah, so I think bear that certainly you're going to have to have consideration to that. But what is often the case is maybe these things happen and often share buybacks are carried out with maybe not that much forethought put into them. So it would need to be part of, I guess, the negotiations in terms of the offer and the terms of the share buyback being offered by the company to make it really clear whether there will be franking credits made available to the shareholder subject of the buyback and if they are, at what rate they will be so that that is all agreed upon by the company, the directors, the shareholder being brought out and the remaining shareholders prior to um, it taking place. Yes, good point. And also, if a dividend has already taken place and hence you're locked into a certain franking percentage, then just adjust the price for the share buyback by the franking percentage. You so, certainly, yeah, you certainly so could do it that way. It may be the case that it's less desirable for the shareholder to exit by way of a buyback depending on what franking credit is made available to them. So I think as long as that's all part of the negotiations, then everyone's aware of the circumstances. If you artificially increase the amount of the dividend component, or you know, I assume increase the amount that paid out, any excess over market value is not frankable? Correct. Correct, that's exactly what they are, yeah. Any amount of the dividend component that exceeds market value will not be frankable.
lodged your form 484 to let ASIC know and that's kind of the final step once the share buyback's been authorised and settled. You lodge your form 484 and advise ASIC of those changes to the shareholding and to the share overall share structure of the company. But we then started to talk about when it comes to tax time, how that is going to impact the tax payable by the shareholder who has been bought out by the company. And there, of course, the franking credits play a big role. That's exactly right. So I think with all due respect, something that maybe some accountants and advisors aren't aware of is that deeming provision in section 159GZZP of the 36 Tax Act that deems that amount higher than the capital attaching to those shares, a deemed dividend. I think sometimes there is a belief out there that that there is a, a potential capital gain and that carry forward losses or small business CGT concessions are available to the shareholder. That's simply not the case. That amount above the capital attaching to those shares is a deemed dividend and is taxed accordingly. So watch out for 159G. G triple Z P, that's right. Yes, yes, that's the lawyer talking. (laughs) And then watch out for section 203-5 of the um, Income Tax Assessment Act. Because yeah, the both first sections one... of the Income Tax Assessment Act, one is the 1936 Act oh, and one is the 1997 Act. So section 159G ZZZP of the 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act is what tells us about the deemed dividend. And then section 203-5 will tell you since it is a frankable dividend, it needs to be franked in the same franking percentage as set out by the benchmark for that period. That period, that's right. And then you have assessable income from the deemed dividend. That's right. Welcome back. So a share buyback can make sense if the company has plenty of cash, but the other shareholders don't. Or if the company has plenty of franking credits to share around, or if the exiting shareholder has a low marginal tax rate or little capital losses or wouldn't qualify for any small business CGT concessions. In the next episode, episode 268, Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will talk about how to save stamp duty. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.